Hey there, pioneers, and welcome to episode number 317. Today's episode, we are talking all about raising meat rabbits. Specifically, what are the pros and cons of raising meat rabbits? How much are you going to get on average per rabbit? At what specific age? So at how many weeks do they usually average so many pounds? What does the feed output look like? How many pounds of feed to get so many pounds of finished rabbit? Hutch requirements. Is it better to use a hutch? Is it better for them to be on the ground and move things around like you would a chicken tractor? The best breed of rabbits for raising meat? What are some of the biggest challenges? How do you choose what type of feeds? So many amazing things that we are going to learn about today with our meat rabbits. And I'm really excited to bring on our guest. Speaking of meat, today's podcast is sponsored by ButcherBox. One of the things that I love about ButcherBox is while raising it yourself or buying it from a very local farm is absolutely one of the best ways and things that I like to support, we can't always do the best thing. And so I love ButcherBox because they come in when you're not able to do that. For example, there is no way that we can get lobster and there's no way that we have a local source for getting lobster. But I can get seafood that is wild caught from ButcherBox and have it delivered straight to my door, even out here in the very rural boonies or out in the boondocks, as we like to say. And even if it comes at the end of the day, because we're the one of the very last stops for the delivery people, it comes still frozen solid. I love that ButcherBox sources their meat from partners with the highest standards for quality. So 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, and as I said, wild-caught seafood. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when we get our meat back from the butcher for our beef, one of the Things that we have to be careful for right before the next butcher comes around or make sure that I'm allotting it out so we don't run out early is hamburger. Hamburger is really one of the most versatile things that we have as far as meat and preparing lots of different meals for our family. And ButcherBox has right now a very special offer. They are giving new members free ground beef for life. You can sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today and get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Just log into butcherbox.com forward slash pioneering today to claim this deal. And I have actually tested their ground beef against our own grass-fed organic raised ground beef. And there's this grass-fed ground beef. It's not certified organic on the beef. But I was actually very impressed with the differences. I will say that our homegrown ground beef was a little bit brighter, more red in color. But as far as cooking and taste and texture and everything else, I didn't even tell the kids it was different because I wanted to be able to truly test and see if they could tell the difference because they've only had in our home our organic grass-fed raised beef actually for my daughter's entire life and since my son was a toddler. And they could not tell a difference. They thought it was just great. And so we were very happy with it. Okay, now on with today's episode, all about learning how to raise rabbits for meat. 
So without further ado, let's get straight to this interview and remember that any of the resources and links that we're talking about can be found in the blog post that accompanies this episode at melissaknorris.com forward slash 317. So that's just the number 317 because this is episode 317. Jeremy, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Well, I'm really excited for this interview because meat rabbits is not something that we have done. When I was growing up, I had a great uncle that raised meat rabbits. Uh, he was okay. actually in a, a wheelchair. He was paralyzed. And so he could have the hutches up high. And that was something that he could take care of. And, and he could butcher with the help of his family and everything. And so I've had rabbit and okay. it's delicious. I have to say from my memory as a kid, it's been a while understandable it really did remind me of chicken you know it was it was kind of similar similar. it is very similar there there are some differences though i would i would probably more describe it like a a white meat turkey with a little bit of a white meat pork texture if you really want to you know get a a better accurate representation of what it tastes like yeah that is a really good explanation because yeah it is i remember even as a kid it was slightly different Easter, we would have this big potluck and they, he would deep fry it or his wife. I don't know. I can't remember now who actually cooked it. But anyways, it was like there would be plates of fried chicken that we would, you know, would have. And then there would be the plates of the rabbit and they would set them side by side. So as a kid, you would just grab one. And <laughs> it's, sometimes you could tell the difference. But how you described it, yes, it like triggered my memory bank. And that, that is a very accurate, really good description. But we're, we are considering doing meat rabbits. It's not something we've done before. So I'm really excited to talk with you. So basically pretend I know nothing about meat rabbits because I actually know very little when it comes to raising them. So some of our our first questions is picking the best breed or some of the breeds when you're going obviously after meat rabbits. So do you have any guidelines or some favorite breeds that you guys use? Well, you know, what we use on our homestead is Californian because they are just your quintessential commercial meat style rabbit. And then we also raise American chinchilla because it just adds a little bit of color and vibrancy into our rabbitry. But they also were originally developed in the United States as a meat rabbit. And the, um, but, but when it comes down to it, all rabbits are meat rabbits. And it's important to find the breed that's going to match your needs and the breed that's going to match your lifestyle because some are going to require just a little bit more care than others and some are going to be much larger in body type so if you have a smaller family it doesn't make sense to raise rabbits that are going to dress out or set you know five six pounds it would make sense to raise rabbits can dress out at a pound pound and a half and so there's really no you know hard this is a meat rabbit and this is not a meat rabbit when it comes to raising them for your own purposes. Okay, thank you. Now, because we have listeners from all over the country, are there certain breeds that do better in cooler climates, that do better in hotter climates? I mean, obviously they all have fur, but are there any really breed specific or is it just making sure you have things set up optimally for whatever your weather is for the rabbits? That's, that's another great question. <laughs> There are breeds that have been developed, specifically Texas A&M developed a breed of rabbit that is well suited for a warm, dry climate. And they have great growth rates. They can handle the warmer temperatures with no issues. And then there are 
breeds that are rain, you know, they can, they can handle temperatures uh, from, you know, 90 degrees Fahrenheit all the way down to negative 30 Fahrenheit without any problems. Rabbits in general do much better in cooler climates. So um, the, the main goal is always going to be to make sure that there is plenty of airflow, no matter where, what kind of rabbits you have, or even where you live, in, in all honesty. But it's important to, to find quality breeding stock from the area in which you live, because they're already pretty well acclimated to that climate. Like living in Michigan, um, I would never in the middle of summer sell a rabbit and transport it down to somebody who lives in Texas or Florida for that matter, because they would have a hard time acclimating because they're in the middle, middle of their summer coat. Um, if, if I'm going to transport it you know, to that area, that region, it's going to be either in spring so they have a slow intro to the heat or in the fall so that they can get a nice cooler climate, and then a full intro into the heat. So really, the, the key is, is to find quality breeding stock in the area in which you reside. And if that's absolutely impossible, then, you know, moving them around when the climate can uh, give them a chance to acclimate is usually best. Okay. And that brings me to my next question, because I'm like, I know where to find great hatcheries if you don't have a local source for chickens, pigs, cattle, but for rabbits... That that was going to be my actually next question, because that's where we were kind of at as we were just starting to research around us. So if you don't know of anyone, I mean, just Google like your area or do you have some good parameters or some ways to find and what to know it would be a reputable breeder or what would be good stock or just things to keep an eye out for? As a general rule of thumb, people who raise rabbits for the sole purpose of meat were not big on advertising. So Google is not usually going to be your best friend if you just search for meat rabbits in my area. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those things, you know, obviously having to, to deal with the idea, the mentality here, especially in the United States, that there are certain animals that are meat and there are certain animals that are pets. And mm -hmm. rabbits, believe it or not, originated in the U.S. as meat. They were never considered pets uh, up until about the 1950s. And so the best place to actually search for quality rabbit stock is your local 4-H fair. Um, they actually have meat pen competitions for rabbits that, you know, are growing the proper rates. And usually at the end of the 4-H fairs, they'll have auctions. And so if you can buy one or two meat pens at a 4-H fair, you pretty much can almost guarantee you're going to have decent stock. And if for some reason you're not able to get in on those, those meat pens, um, it's, that's a good place to start making connections uh, with reputable breeders. Uh, oh, another, okay. another great place is the American Rabbit Breeders Association website. And they will, um, and if you're looking specifically for a commercial type rabbit, let's say like a Californian, a New Zealand, um, American chinchilla, or uh, Rex are sometimes used also as meat rabbits, uh, but also a lot of times for their fur, uh, for, for people who do fur crafting. You can go onto the ARBA website, search your area, and then search for a specific type of breed. Okay, perfect. And I love that you said 4-H. I was a 4-H kid, not with rabbits, obviously, with horses. And so my, my heart is always near and dear to 4-Hers to and, and fair time. They work so hard they for, do. for those fairs. So they, I they love that. They are amazing people. And, and they love to talk about their rabbits. Our, one of our favorite things to do, uh, our 4-H fair here in our local county is going to be coming up next weekend and i can't wait to go and just start talking 
with the range of breeders who will be there and uh, just kind of chew the fat a little bit, figure out, you know, what feed is working well for them. Um, you know, some of the issues they might've been dealing with. One of the things here in Michigan, our, our, our seasons have been absolutely backwards. So we had a, a hot summer like spring and now we have a cooler rainy like summer, spring like summer. So bugs have been a major issue. We're all dealing with how to, you know, how to deal with the, the flies and the mosquitoes and all of those things. <laughs> so um, we just re we really love going to the 4-H, the local 4-H fair, and we're really happy that they're back again this year. Yeah, yeah, same here. I'm, it's been a, a nice blessing as we move yes. into this summer to see, be able to go to some things that weren't available to us last year. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of like feeding the rabbits, um, but also, you know, getting your, your meat rabbits, Mm -hmm. um, hutch, hutch requirements or pin requirements, you know, kind of what is best for that. And then also leading right into your best feed. Okay. So when it comes to housing your rabbits, there's pretty much two veins of thought. You've got those who are pretty strict on hutches or cages. And then you have those that are pretty strict on creating a, a colony or you know, uh, in a, in a more natural environment for their rabbits to exist in. And both of these ideas have merits and both of them have cons. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of back and forth. And the best thing to, for, that I would recommend is to, number one, understand the stock that you have, because there are certain breeds of rabbits that do much better in hutches and cages. And there are certain breeds who might do better in a, in a ground environment based upon uh, their coat you know, their, their fur type and um, their, uh, the quality of the, the fur pads on their feet. So there's a, a lot of things that play into it. But number one that I think a lot of people have realized is that it's going to come down to climate. So for us here in Michigan, as I said, we've had a really wet, wet and rainy summer so far. And because of that, we have a very high parasite load in our soil. And so we prefer to raise off the ground and in cages or hutches. And it also helps us to collect our manure a little easier so we can use it in the garden. Got to use that bunny gold everywhere you can, uh, whether it's, we use it in seed starting. And all. Anyway, I'm, I'm, you're going to get me in a bunny trail um, because I, I, I go on. Let me try to stay on, on topic here. OK, I love talking rabbits. So um, cages, it also gives you the ability to uh, handle your rabbits a, a little more often. So. Um, as far as size goes, you want a minimum of about anywhere from depending upon the size of the rabbits, but let's just stick with a commercial breed like uh, Californian. So they're going to be a, a, a medium to medium large uh, breed of rabbit. They're going to max out at about uh, 10 to 12 pounds uh, live adult weight. And you want to give them about six square feet of space to move around. The rule of thumb, according to like the American Rabbit Breeders Association and um, some other universities that have done this, is that you want to make sure you have enough room for them uh, to horizontally completely lay out, fully stretched out, and also so that they can stand up on their rear legs and won't be able to hit their heads on the top of the cage. So for most rabbits, you're looking at one of your side dimensions needs to be uh, 24 to 30 inches and um, at least 16 inches in height in order to make sure they have enough room to be comfortable. Okay. And, and that also will help you when it, it's time to handle them because, you know, if you have too large of a cage and you can't reach that back corner, well, that's where that rabbit's always going to go is in that <laughs> back corner. Um, because while some of them do love affection, 
when it comes to actually being picked up, they don't like it. They like their feet to be on something solid. Okay. And so with cages, uh, you know, and some people will get stacking cages. So they'll have, you know, um, three high uh, with uh, dropping collector pans underneath each of those layers. So obviously they're not dropping uh, on the ones below. Um, some people will ra uh, raise them in hanging cages in a, sol in a solid single row across a, a barn or a carport. So, you know, there's a lot of different options. And honestly, you can go on, you know, this is another place where, where the internet and technology is our friend. You can go on and you can get inspirations, uh, inspirational ideas from around the world when it comes to how to house your rabbits, um, whether cages or hutches. And then a colony idea is creating a larger area with a, a dirt floor and giving them things to, to tunnel into and, you know, just kind of creating a, what someone would consider a more natural environment for rabbits. Mm -hmm. And this is, it's a, it's a good idea because, you know, it gives them some more room to hop and to play. And one of the things that helps to build muscle is activity. So, you know, if you don't have enough space for your rabbits to run around, it's going to, it might be difficult for them to build that muscle that you're looking for, for meat, because that's what meat is, obviously. And so, you know, the colony has some great ideas, but I will, I, we can't do colonies. We have attempted to raise rabbits on the ground um, in some grazing tractors, and it works good for a couple weeks. Um, you know, we'll put them out maybe just for a, a day or two in order to get some, some fresh air and stuff. But any longer than that, and they begin to collect parasites such as, you know, flea, uh, fermites, um, fleas, or things like that from the other animals that they might come around. And then they can also pick up uh, intestinal parasites off of the ground. And um, another thing is, uh, you know, coccidia, which is, you know, it's a, it's a problem with the chickens too sometimes. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's, um, there, there's some, some back and forth. If you live in a drier region like, you know, Arizona, West Texas, you know, a climate like that where your humidity levels are much lower and your soil's not as damp, well, a, a drier soil does not, you know, hold on, doesn't give a, a good environment for the parasites to exist. And so you, you might be able to get away with that and not have those issues in your rabbitry. Okay, interesting. I didn't realize that they could cross with some of the same disease issues as the chickens. So, well, it's, it's similar, but it's not the exact same strain of coccidia. Okay. Um, yeah. So you know, they, it, it all affects them differently. And then there's different strains that affect, you know, different, 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 different animals. So, but the, the biggest thing is if there are wild rabbits in the area, anything that the wild rabbits carry will transfer over. So okay. um, any of those diseases that, you know, you're told don't eat rabbit and, you know, only, only harvest rabbit in the wild ending in R. Well, that's usually because they don't have quite as much of a, a parasite load at the time. And so in the middle of summer, you don't want those wild rabbits uh, intermingling with your domesticated rabbits. Okay. Which, which makes sense. And I'm really glad you talked about the, the soil conditions if you're considering those outdoor pens, because living where we are in the Pacific Northwest, now typically, talking about typical in your weather mm. patterns, we are still cooler and usually pretty wet except for about the month of August. However, <laughs> this year, I think we switched. You guys are getting all of our rain. We haven't had any rain since the beginning of June, and we actually had a weekend where we were 120 degrees Fahrenheit here a couple of weeks back. So, yeah, so I'm like, oh, well, this summer we would actually be quite dry and it would probably work. But in a typical year, um, I'm thinking for us, especially having the chickens and the cattle and the pigs and rotating yeah. with all of them, it sounds like doing a hut type will be better suited for our area and for the rabbits. So yes. I would definitely recommend that for somebody starting off is to always start okay. off with a hutch. 
or, or a cage, um, you know, off the ground. And then as you get a little bit better at, you know, recognizing and managing any possible disease outbreaks in your rabbitry, then you can, you know, start experimenting with some, some different housing ideas. Okay. Now, so I have to ask this part. So I know the different breeds, you said live weight, 10 pounds dressed out. I'm assuming it's going to be like maybe around five or six. Is that about accurate as far as, as the meat you're going to harvest? So a, a dress carcass, yeah, you're looking about 65, 60 to 70% of your live carcass, of the live weight being in a dressed carcass. Similar to chicken, yes. Okay. So with, with the rabbits, again, complete novice here. I know I could Google some of this, but I have you here, and I love getting information from someone with, with lots of experience. But what is their typical ratio, so uh, female to male, doe mm-hmm. and buck, and then the gestation period, and then how old are they when you generally begin that they're at a harvestable weight, so the grow out to butcher time? Okay. No, it was, once again, wonderful questions. Um, when it comes to the ratios in your rabbitry, one buck can service up to six doe a day. Oh, wow. Okay. So, you, you, <laughs> he, he's a pretty hardy character. Um, so, when it looks at ratios, once again, depending upon your needs for your family, and most of the time, I recommend starting with a trio. So you have two doe and a buck. And uh, in a 12-month period on moder- a moderate breeding schedule, you can produce anywhere from 250 to 300 pounds of meat in a year. Wow. Just from, the, from, just from that investment into, into your breeding trio. Wow. Okay. And that's obviously, you know, good genetics, good quality breeding stock to begin with. So um, those numbers can fluctuate a little bit. But you can even be more intensive and get it closer to 500 pounds of meat uh, if you have good quality stock. So they're, they're a very versatile animal uh, when it comes to, um, you know, the, the, they'll kind of work on your schedule here. Gestation period for a rabbit is anywhere from 29 to 32 days. Um, sometimes goes a little longer. And most of the time you're going to begin starting the, you know, the gestational clock at the point of breeding. And so because of some sometimes delays in the implementation of the actual breeding activity there, you know, it can take a couple of days for things to actually work. You might be looking at 32 up to 34 days uh, to get um, those rabbits fully uh, developed within the mom and then birthed out. So there's a, the gestation period is, is relatively short. And yeah. the, great thing, the great thing about uh, rabbits uh, is they are on-demand ovulators. So unlike most other mammals in, the, in, the, in the, the known world, right? They have monthly cycles or yearly cycles. However, rabbits, uh, the doe will uh, ovulate when they are bred. Oh. So it is possible to be breeding your doe back to the buck within the same day that they have given birth. Oh, my. Uh, and this happens in the wild. And if you are colony raising, you might see this happen where while she's in the middle of giving birth, the buck is trying to breed. And it is, that's why you kind of get that term breeding like rabbits. Okay. But it is, it's a little bit of a, misno- a misnomer because they don't, it doesn't always work quite as well as you hope it will. So if a very aggressive breeding schedule 
you could you know, introduce the buck and doe. The fall off occurs. You start your clock. That's uh, at 30 days. If everything you know happens as expected, she has a litter. Then she is going to be nursing that litter for four, six, eight weeks, depending upon how long you decide to allow your litters to nurse. And then at weaning, um, you remove that litter. Now, as far as breeding back the doe, you can do it uh, within 10 days of her, you know, give her, give her some time to gain some condition back, breed her back within 10 days. And so it's possible to every 40 days to be having that doe producing a litter, which is a very aggressive schedule. But if you do the math here and we're looking at, you know, every 40 days, so that's approximately nine litters a month, excuse me, nine litters a year. Oof, my math is way off there. Nine <laughs> litters a year, approximately nine litters a year at 10 to 12 babies. Um, or kits or bunnies, however you choose to call them. Okay. Uh, every every litter. Okay. So that's okay. My math's terrible. Um. So that's nine times. So we're just saying about a hundred, about a hundred a year could wow. be born per doe. And each of those, if raised to five pounds live weight, will put out about a three pound carcass. So if you do the math, you're looking at from a single doe. It's possible. It is possible to get about three hundred pounds of meat produced from a single doe. And okay. buck. So that is very aggressive. Okay, and, that's what I was going to ask. Is yeah. that like, <laughs> like, as as a mother myself, just <laughs> with thinking about that, I I know that that they're you know that they're 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 bred to do that even in the wild Correct. and and that. But as far as you managing and like allowing the the buck to have access and all of that, I'm assuming if you have a little bit more of a rest period in there, that her overall health would be improved. So what would be a less aggressive? Yeah. For us, we usually breed back at four weeks after kindling. So, and then that, and then we would remove the babies at six weeks so that they have enough time to nurse. They don't have all of that immunity that they need when they're born. So the longer they can nurse, the better gut health they're going to have. Rabbits just have a very sensitive digestive system. And so at weaned at six weeks, they have a, a greater chance of not having any uh, intestinal distress. And they also have kind of max. So you've also maximized the caloric output of the dough at that point. So your feed is going to even be less at that point. So you know, this is a more moderate schedule. And then sometimes we have even let our does wean all the way up to, you know, uh, nurse all the way up to eight weeks. And just as a test one time, I had my favorite doe and she's, uh, she's one of our first. I let her nurse until processing, until it was almost time for processing day, which we process usually about 12 weeks, which gives us a five pound live weight. Okay. And she was still nursing her babies at, at, at 12 weeks. And it was, they were an amazing litter and we didn't process. We ended up selling those off as breeding stock because they were just absolutely amazing rabbits. Uh, at 12, I mean, she was feeding eight, eight, 12 week old rabbits. So basically with lifting her off of the bottom oh of her cage gosh. to nurse. Wow. Um, it was, it was quite a sight to see. And uh, now I don't recommend that, but it was kind of a test because we wanted to see just, you know, what really are the mothering qualities of rabbits? And they, they really are great mothers. Okay. And that's some of the things about certain breeds is they make, they are the, the, that mothering ability has been bred into them over, over time. 
And when we look at like the Californian and the New Zealand, because they were developed as a commercial breed, they were selectively bred for their growth rates, for their mothering abilities, for their temperament. Because, um, you know, these breeds were developed in the early 19th century, actually early 1900s, not 19th century, that'd make them the 1800s, the early 1900s um, to become the white meat of America. And they were selectively bred over about seven years. And so that they could be raised in battery cages in, you know, we see, we see chickens nowadays in these, you know, commercial battery cages for laying eggs and, you know, developing them for meat. Well, they, they were trying to do the same thing with rabbits. And so they were really looking for even tempered animals. They were looking for ones that had um, pelts that were usable so they wouldn't let things go to waste. And also for large litters and, you know, mothering ability. So if you really look at the commercial breeds, they're, they're, they're that way for a reason because that's how they were bred to be. Okay. One of the things I wanted to, to talk about um, is you mentioned they have their digestive systems when mm-hmm. we were talking about the babies and, and allowing them to nurse, um, but it's finicky. So food-wise, um, what are we looking for? One, if we're trying to get them to harvestable weight by 12 weeks when you know, we're doing these you know, to get them, you know, like I'm saying with the meat birds, you know, like making sure they have the, the correct protein ratio and, and all of that. Um, so is there a difference in the food when you are raising them to get them to harvesting size? versus just kind of your, your breeding stock. Um, mm-hmm. and, and just break that down for me. <laughs> well, so there's, there, there's, there's, this is a little controversial. So okay. especially as homesteaders, and this is something that we struggle with. Our go-to when it comes to feed is a commercial, a commercial, a commercial made pellet that is made locally. We do try to, you know, keep our, our resources as local as possible. So we did find a mill that's about uh, 30 miles away from us and it's sold by a, 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 a smaller farm store near us. And so we, we try to, to purchase their feed. And unfortunately, it's, it's not organic, you know, and, but it has been well blended to give them the protein needs. There, some of them will include a lot of roughage in order to make sure that they can maintain their fiber needs and it's got the vitamins and minerals that they need. So there, there are tons of commercially made pellets, pelletized feed available. And don't feel bad if that's the route you choose to take, because it has been, you know, developed for many decades now in order to give them the output or the input they need to grow to the output that you desire. And in order to get that growth rate, it's, you know, we, we do free feed our rabbits. So they're, they're usually nursing for about the first two weeks of their life. Once their eyes open and they start getting out of the nesting box, they begin to, you know, snack when they see mom snacking. Uh, you know, when they see mom eating in, in the bowl, they come over and they'll sit right in the bowl and eat whatever the mom is eating. <laughs> um, they do the same thing with the water bowl. It's, you know, you walk in there and there's four of them piled into the water bowl. And you're like, what are you guys doing? They're not swimming. That's just because, well, mom was there, so they want to be there. And so for the first two weeks, they're going to be mostly dependent upon their, uh, the milk produced by their mother. And then after that, we, we pretty much free feed. So um, we, we keep their bowl full morning and night so that they can eat as much as they desire up until processing day. And then for all of our breeding stock, we only feed them uh, about a quarter cup in the morning and a quarter cup at night. And that is more just as a, you know, maintenance. And then we'll also give them, you know, uh, weeds that we pull out of the garden, um, wild forageables that we get all over 
you know, from anything from lamb's quarter, plantain, um, branches from our apple trees, pear tree. They, they, they eat a, a variety of things. And so in order to get that maximum growth rate, though, a commercial feed is the best way to go. But there are other avenues of feeding your rabbits. And that's, there, are, uh, there was a book written a little while ago. It's um, called Beyond the Pellet. And it stirred up a little bit of controversy because they were trying to find ways to, to feed their rabbits without buying a commercially made pellet which was understandable. It's something that I think everybody who is raising rabbits, because personally, I think rabbits are the ultimate, you know, self-sufficiency animal, you know, no, no incubator is necessary. We don't have to usually worry whether or not, Oh, is, is, is the mom going to, you know, sit on the nest long enough to incubate the eggs. It's, it's just one of the, they're one of those animals that they're fairly reliable and you can hold back um, some of your babies for future generations of breeding stock. But when it comes to self-sufficiency for rabbits, finding a way to feed them is difficult and still maintain those growth rates. And so it's, it's important that, number one, that they're getting enough protein. About, 18, about anywhere from 16 to 18% of their diet should be protein. Okay. Um, one of the ways to achieve that is uh, through you know, alfalfa or other high-protein leafy greens. Uh, like I had mentioned some of the wild forageables that we get, uh, lamb's quarter. And, and plantain are both a high protein, you know, leafy green, but then also finding that balance of not giving them anything that will um, have too much sugar because it'll cause a, uh, an imbalance in their gut flora, which can cause digestive distress through bloating. And, you know, rabbits are not able to naturally fart or pass gas. So therefore, if they get gas buildup in their gut, they're over with, you know, it's oh, okay. uh, it can be, it can be deadly for sure. So, and too much sugar, you know, my, my sons like to tell the joke, how come you never see, you know, a rabbit wearing glasses? Well, that's because they eat carrots, right? <laughs> right. Um, but, but they're high carb, <laughs> they're high carb, high sugar, yeah. and it can, and too much, too much carrots or corn or anything of that nature could okay. be very deadly for them, but as a treat, you know, not a problem, uh, but finding that balance of things that they will eat and what will provide the nutritional needs for their diet can be kind of difficult um, because even allowing them to graze, you know, out in the yard, they're going to get enough mass, but it might not have the nutritional need to have help them to gain the weight that you want. Um, I know there have been many experiments done with uh, pasture raising rabbits, similar to what is done with, you know, like the red ranger mm -hmm. um, broiler birds, uh, the freedom rangers, and uh, they've been successful, but, limited because the, you know, they have slightly slower growth rates. You know, their feed costs go down, but they have right. slightly slower growth rates. And so the time to, to butcher, uh, to processing becomes extended. And so therefore your overall investment does get extended a little bit. And when it comes to the feed to rate, uh, feed, excuse me, when it comes to the feed to weight conversion ratio for rabbits, on average, they're about three to one if you're feeding a good balanced commercial pellet. So it okay. takes about three, three pounds of, uh, you know, a pelletized feed to get them to uh, one pound of live weight. And for meat birds, that's uh, usually about two, and a half, uh, two to two and a half pounds. So they're, they're similar, but, but they're different. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and I think it's why it's like, you know, we, I've, with the meat birds, 
Mm-hmm. We've even went through that same thing. You know, do we do the Cornish cross broilers because they do come to wait faster and then our time investment is less? Mm. Or do we go, you know, the Red Ranger route and do you try to do more of a free range where you, you know, and, and so I think with all of these, you have to know what your specific goals are for that exactly. time period exactly. and then pick what works best for you. And so I'm, I'm glad you discussed both sides with, though. With no shame because right, people, exactly. you know, it, 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 you have those. And, and like I said, I, I always hesitate to say that we don't use a, that we use a non-organic feed, but it's just what is most readily available to us at the moment. And it's local. Now, if, if that same local granary were to begin creating an organic food, we would absolutely change over, but I'm not going to be paying, um, I'll say this very carefully. I'm not going to be paying um, a big corporate conglomeration for organic feed at the expense of a local company uh, being able to survive. Yeah. And, you know, I would always prefer to buy local than to buy from an international conglomerate just because it says it's organic. Yeah. You know, and again, knowing what is most important to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so I yeah. like that we're having this conversation because I know that there are some listeners who, you know, they're like, well, or, you know, organic is more important to me for what, for whatever reason, Absolutely. for maybe yeah, specific health things. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's important that we have this talk, like that you, you pick what it is for you, because I think even within homesteading or farming <sighs> and all of that, people can get very dogmatic yeah. And convinced that there is only one way and that's the absolute best way. I mean, and there's best practices overall, of course, yeah. but there's a lot of things that you have to make work for you and where you're at in your journey and what goals and what things are important to you. And so I think it's really great that we actually get to have this conversation um, and cover kind of all those different aspects and then give people, you know, they can go out and decide which one's for them, but then they know, you know, where all of these exist. So I really appreciate that you Absolutely. actually brought that up and covered well, kind no of problem. both sides. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's always our goal. And you know, our, our main focus is to be an educating homestead and I'm never going to tell you that I do it best. And I'm always open and willing to hear better ways. And, but even in my presentations, I, I don't say this is the only way I say, this is one way. And if you, you know, you do some research and you find a better way, then go do it. And then tell me how you did it. Cause I want to do it too. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I, I really love, I appreciate that a lot actually. And you actually answered a lot, a lot of my questions. So if they're given the proper ratio of protein, mm-hmm. et cetera, that it's at about 12 weeks that they're going to be at the a harvestable size then from birth. Absolutely. Now there are some overachievers out there that they've got breeding stock. They're able to make it between eight and 10 weeks and they're really able to compete with the, you know, the Cornish cross in that area. But most of them are, you know, most, uh, a, a good target is five pounds live weight by 12 weeks. And if, if you're seeing that, then you know that you're consistently going to be reaching that three to one ratio. Okay. Now, one of the great things that you, we had briefly mentioned, but where I'm intrigued with rabbits, I think I shouldn't say over chickens because there's place there's both there's place for both of them on on homestead. So, but what what I find I'm finding fascinating is we're talking about the rabbits more so than the meat birds because we have meat birds going right now. Is one their poop is not hot, so you yes. can put that directly on the garden without an aging period, correct? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, this year I did a little test and we I mixed in. 
rabbit manure directly into my seed starting soil so that we could give all of our plants a little nitrogen burst once they started to root. And we did amazing. We never had an issue with any of our plants wilting or dying. Uh, Germination rates were, you know, off the charts, um, well over 90% germination rates with all of our seeds. And so it's, yeah, it can even, even seedlings can handle having a little rabbit manure uh, around their roots. Okay. That I, I got to tell you, I'm kind of liking that thought. And then the other part is the pelts. So it's yes. not just the meat, but there is, I'm assuming a market or is there a market like where you can actually just sell the pelts or are most people using the pelts and making things out of them just to use for themselves. And then when they get excess, perhaps offering those for sale, or what do you kind of see happening a lot with the, the pelts with rabbits? Well, the pelts are one of those things that um, the market's hot or cold. And so you have to either find a creative way in order to use your pelts, or for us, sometimes they do end up just in the compost because they are either uh, an, a pelt that is you know, of poor quality because they're young rabbits. And mm-hmm. so the skin is going to be very thin. So they don't really hold up to being tanned well. Uh, if, you're, okay. if, if one of your main focuses is getting that additional byproduct of, of the pelts, then you're going to be raising your rabbits to a minimum of 16 weeks of age, closer to 20 weeks, okay. more than likely. And you're also going to only harvest your premium pelts in deep winter or deep summer when they're not in a molt, uh, because the molt will ruin the quality of, of the pelt um, and, and it'll have a lot of fur slippage. So you, you have to kind of find some creative ways to use the rest of, of the rabbit in order to reduce your your waste. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, we try to teach in all the lectures or classes that we do, we try to teach as, you know, use as much of the rabbit as you can. We don't feel bad if there's things you can't use, but almost every part of the rabbit will have a purpose beyond just the eating for human consumption. There are people who have found a great market in their area. They're taking the whole pelts, cutting them to strips, twisting them and making dog treats out of them, whether they're dehydrated um, or smoked or baked or, you know, however they're deciding to to cure them. Um, The ears can be dried out and used as dog treats, as can the feet even. Um, Obviously, there's, you know, rabbit's feet can be uh, the, we, we process the, the feet and the tails, uh, make keychains, use them in crafts. The tails make these little nice little fur balls that, uh, you know, the, the fashion that was pretty big about five years ago, the, the, the furry balls that people were hanging off of their uh, purses, ladies mm-hmm. were hanging off their purses. Um, we sold a lot, of, a lot of tails in that manner okay. um, after they were properly processed. And a lot of the internal organs can even be used uh, if, if you choose not to use them for human consumption, because uh-huh. just as a side note, if you're a liver pate lover, uh-huh. the rabbit liver has, it's one of the largest livers uh, as, you know, liver to body size ratio, one of the largest livers in the animal kingdom. And it is also considered an extreme delicacy. So uh, if you enjoy liver, whether it's, you know, fried liver or liver pate, personally, I don't enjoy liver. So um, but we have heard people raving about uh, the, the, the rabbit liver. Uh, some people will use the, the livers, the kidneys in soups and stews. Um, we like to hold out our kidneys, livers, lungs, and hearts, and we will dehydrate those for dog treats. And they can be sold at farmer's markets or to friends, uh, as, you know, as long as your local laws allow it, of course. 
but a lot of the rabbit can be used even if you're not necessarily using it for your own consumption. So, uh, you know, if you're raising your rabbits out to five weeks and you're holding the meat back for yourself and then using the rest of the products to either make uh, craft items or animal treats, there is a, a good market out there for, you know, all natural, whole, uh, possibly organically grown dog treats. Yeah, no, those are that. That's a wealth of different options there. Um, so that's really exciting. And I'm really glad that you specified though with the pelts, like with the molting, because I, I guess with the fur animals, like I wasn't even thinking, like I know with the, when I used to have horses, I don't currently, but yeah, their coats are very different in the winter and oh, summer. Yes. And I, I wasn't really thinking about summer coat, winter coat, when you're looking at it for the pelt part. Um, and, and yeah. You know when it is molting season, we'll walk out into our bunny barn and it looks like it snowed overnight. Um, <laughs> we've got to, we're just, you're just pulling fur out of your mouth and out of your eyes. It's just floating everywhere. It's bogged up all the fans we have in there. It gets, it gets pretty rough sometimes during molting okay. season. Okay. This, this is good information to have though, so that you're not shocked and you, you know, what's coming. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really good. Well, this, I mean, there's so much more that we could cover and you are going to be this year again at the Virginia Homesters of America's conference, and you're going to be teaching some on rabbits, correct? That's correct. We'll be doing a, an hour lecture on rabbits on the homestead, going all the way from you know, picking out your breeding stock, you know, all the way through processing. And uh, even since the very beginning of Homesteaders of America, we will be doing a, uh, a live rabbit processing at that class. You are okay. Great. I'm yep. really hoping that it's not the same time as mine because <laughs> I, I want, I want to catch that. I want to be there for that. So um, for those who would like to find out more information now, or may not be able to attend the conference, where's the best place for people to connect with you uh, to continue to learn more about the rabbits and homesteading and that type of stuff? Well, I I'll be honest with you. I'm not a I run everything for our social media so that I could go days without posting anything, but we try to keep everybody updated uh, through Facebook uh, at Independence Acres Homestead or Instagram uh, using the same handle, Independence Acres Homestead. And we also have a lot of our rabbit content on our YouTube channel. We are still a small YouTube channel, so, you know, we're, we're growing a little bit and, um, but most of our rabbit content we did make earlier. Uh, in our YouTube life. So um, we'll probably re be remaking some of those as the years go on here, but uh, it, it ages pretty well. We've got an entire series on uh, cuniculture, which is actually the accurate name for the practice of raising rabbits for meat or other byproducts. Oh, say that again. I need to hear that then. Cuniculture. Cuniculture. Okay. Yes. It's a, uh, you can find that. Let's see. Unfortunately, with my nerves, if I try to spell it for you, I'm going to screw it up. So, That's okay. Well, uh, <laughs> you can send me the send me the link, and will. we will put it in the blog post that accompanies that. this episode. And then okay. anybody who's listening and, and needs a clickable link to all of the things that you just mentioned, we'll make sure that that's included in the blog post that goes out with this episode. Absolutely. Great. Well, thank you so much. I learned a ton. I know I'm going to have more questions, so I'm really looking forward to your class and. Don't be surprised if you get an email from me. You can reach out anytime. I'm more than willing to share and I will probably talk too much when it comes to rabbits. 
Oh, I love that. I'm right there with you. When I'm passionate about it and you find someone, you're like, yes, let me tell you all the things. Oh, you want to know about rabbits, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Like I said, this was really exciting. I'm going to be having, my daughter is the one that actually, she's 12. And she really is the one that wants to take on rabbits um, and get a breeding, a breeding pair, or perhaps two, two does to the buck of the ratio that you told us there. So she will be listening to this episode as well, because I told her if we got rabbits, they were going to be her project, of course, will help. But uh, there you go. I love that ownership, right? Yep. She's going to be taking on. So she'll be listening to this episode and will also actually be accompanying me this year in October to HOA. So she'll now, are you guys going to be there the day before for the hands on class? We are. Yeah. Are, Are you you're doing a class, aren't you? I am, but yeah, but But if she is going to be (laughs) there, you can send her to come find me and I will will allow her to audit the class. Oh, that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. It's my pleasure. Oh, awesome. Okay, well, I'm very excited now, um, even more so, especially for her. I can't wait till we get off here and I get to go and tell her that. So thank you. Thank (laughs) you so much. This was a wealth of information. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and I can't wait to hear if you decide to start raising meat rabbits or if you are raising meat rabbits and have any tips to share with those of us who are not yet. We would love to see them in either a review of the podcast. You could go to the blog post and leave those in the comments or share with me on social media. But I hope that you enjoyed this and you learned a lot right along with me. I've got another jam packed awesome episode for you next week that I can't wait to share with you. So until then, blessings and mason jars from now. Mm-hmm.